0: We know of new methods of attack. The horse, the Fifth
1: column. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, compañeros, liberals, centrists, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, you're all here. We love you all. Welcome back to another episode of the Fifth Column Podcast. And, and you guessed right, by the way, when you hear that the dulcet tones of Michael Moynihan, you know that Camille Foster is in a foreign country wasting somebody's money. Um, So we don't know where he is, but I'm joined by Matt Welch, who is, he shows up for work. That's the great thing about Matt. I really appreciate that about him. Yep. Editor-at-large, which means he doesn't have a job at Reason Magazine. But rather than talk nonsense about our very interesting lives, which if you subscribe to the Substack, hint, hint. (laughs) It's not even a hint. I'm just saying it. It's not a hint. I, I just thought that was a hint. It's not actually, I'm, I'm beseeching you to subscribe to the Substack at wethefifth.substack.com because then you can hear us talk about all the other nonsense in our lives. But we're not going to do that tonight. And the reason is because I've turned the television on a couple of days ago, and I, I was told that capitalism was over and the world was imploding. And so I said, we have to discuss this. Matt said, we have to discuss this are we qualified? No, of course we aren't. Do we know things? Yeah, we do. But are we qualified? I, I, you're no. The you're the host not. of the business of life. Yeah. Well this. That, thought, oh, oh hold, like on, a, hold on. Hold on. Hold yeah. on. I have a tie-in. Our guest was on that show.
2: See? And
1: that is where I met our guest. And that's why the light bulb went on over my head. And I said, Alison Schrager, economist, Bloomberg columnist, Author of a book called "The Econ- An Economist Walks Into a Brothel," which I think is uh, still as relevant as when it was written. What a couple years ago, Allison? Yeah, twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Okay, so it's still relevant. Yeah. And um, needless to say, you, we turn to her to demystify all of this complication. And I'm still I, I just figured out what a credit default sw- default swap was, like uh, two weeks mm-hmm. ago, and that 's the last one so, so I've caught up, <laughs> and we're going to get into some pretty serious stuff because I actually have been following this pretty closely, but let's pretend for a second that our listeners are all very clever people, but maybe there's a few stragglers and don 't know exactly what happened. So all of this this kind of contagion that seems to be happening now i 'm looking at Credit Suisse, all this stuff. But it starts with a bank in Silicon Valley, appropriately called Silicon Valley Bank, that collapses and is taken over by the government, by the FDIC, in a matter of a day. How did this happen?
3: Well, it, you know, it's a modern bank, but it was an old-fashioned bank run and that um, they made some investments. They lost a lot of money. Um, It became apparent, if you read the footnotes of their financial statements, that they couldn't cover their many, many deposits so um, the depositors this time were a little special, and that they were uh, tech firms who talked to each other a lot on social media. And they started whispering, "We should get our money out." And they started pulling their money out. And it became clear if they all did that, that the bank would be insolvent. And I should also mention that a lot, like unlike most banks, like ninety percent of these deposits were uninsured by the FDIC.
1: Eleven yeah, percent were under the FDIC limit of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Eleven percent. Yeah, it's a Silicon Valley bank, right?
3: Yeah, which is unusual because you had you had tech firms, and what you had is you had their VCs putting a ton of money into them. They had nowhere; they don't earn profits, mm-hmm. so they just
1: <laughs> silly profits.
3: <laughs> There's a lot going on about the low interest rate environment that created this environment and mm-hmm. also took it away. So th-
1: but let me ask you a question there. Um And a lot of people have speculated about this, and I don 't know what to make of it the the kind of v c types and i I really loathe the um the uh, the anything that uses the word bro, so i'm not going to use that, but people have pushed back on this idea that had this not been a contingent amongst people on Twitter who talked to each other, had they not gone and tried to take all of their money. Out of this bank, it wouldn't have become insolvent; it would have corrected itself in a short period of time. You know they were talking to Goldman Sachs about an infusion of capital, and the odd thing about this is goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs doesn 't come to a conclusion with them, but then <laughs> buys their bad debt and makes a hundred million dollars on you know fees and doing that so could this have been prevented if everyone just kind of sat tight for a little bit
3: well, that's not clear I mean. They bought a lot of bonds that fell in value, and it's not clear they'll ever go back up in value. Yeah, um, But they could have muddled through for a while. I mean, maybe they would have come up with a new business model. Uh, maybe interest rates would have gone back down. But um, at the very least, it wouldn't have been a bank run. Mm.
2: Mike, uh, Michael uh, mentioned credit default swaps, and I was having flashbacks to 2008. I remember I was in D.C. I'd just become the editor of Reason. And the financial crisis happens, and they came up here with a president of the Reason Foundation, David Knott. We spent a week in New York trying to figure it out, like talking to people who we knew who were allies up here, sitting like literally with people from Bear Stearns on during that week, um, and having them unwind and a lot of different perspectives. Didn't and have wasn't, better things
1: to do, Matt. Uh, to well, that
2: maybe, maybe that was an early sign. This explains the uh, crisis,
1: by the way. Let's talk to Matt and David Knott.
2: It's uh, uh, yeah, there's people who are licking their wounds, but um. You had to learn all that stuff because it was really fancy derivatives. Is it not the case in this particular thing? You kind of don't have to learn all that much. It's a bank that had uh, the highest amount or some of the highest amount of uninsured depositors of any bank out there, right? People who deposit above that $250,000 FDIC level. And the bank had among the most, if not the most amount of long-term treasury debt at a time when which were you know which uh, at at rates that were a lot different 18 months ago than now and they hadn't reacted <laughs> they, they were just zero. hadn't <laughs> yeah. they just hadn't no really yeah
1: done anything money. yeah
3: yeah like it's it, it's astounding like they bought these bonds like when rates were at record lows not only that at that point the fed was buying almost everything they weren't buying yeah Fed was buying an obscene amount of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and they're like, "Let's buy those too." Anyway, the Fed is like, "In a year, we're going to stop buying these, and we're like the only buyer of them." And then inflation happened, so they had to raise rates too. So it just—it's—it's
1: it's astounding. It's not really. I mean, when people say the phrase "a perfect storm," it—it's—it's it's, that's the kind of phrase that suggests that a, th- a lot of things you couldn't anticipate. Right. This you could anticipate, right? I mean. The question that nobody seems to be asking, you watch CNBC, you read the Wall Street Journal, and just listen to people talking about this stuff. Why? We hear about the bonuses. These guys are getting paid out, enormous bonuses, like a couple of weeks before. Those were scheduled, apparently, but they were getting a lot of bonuses. Um, and the people that are sitting on the bank's board are like, you know, drummers for the Grateful and Dead it, and stuff. It's it, just totally baffling who's on it. But why would a bank... Knowing that these interest rates are not going to stay at zero for forever, they are at zero because of a once in a lifetime pandemic, and they're going to start ticking back up. Why be so heav- heavily leveraged? And like, why not? Why are they hedging against this like interest rate risk? I mean, it seems rather logical that you would maybe diversify a little bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, all banks, you know, have liabilities. Uh, that are short term in terms of deposits and yeah. are in long term assets, usually like or traditionally like loans and things like that. So I mean, to some degree, things went exceptionally bad in that everyone wanted their deposits at once. And that rarely yeah. happens. But they were especially prone to that risk because one, they're all in the same industry, and they all talk. And two, these are all like tech startups or in various tech firms that only have all this money because rates are low to begin with. So yeah. once the rates go high, their funding goes and all of a sudden they need all their money. So it did all come together. But it in as I said, normally banks do have longer term assets, but there was a lot they could have done to shorten the duration. And they just apparently they didn't have a risk manager for like a year of this. Yeah. And also <laughs> I am a bank.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well easy. Yeah, people have been pointing out that they did have a, a rather active DEI department, and I have seen like fifteen fact checks of like it wasn't DEI who brought the bank. And no, it's like no one's saying that; they're just making fun of them for not having anyone, you know, looking at the risk of what they're doing. But they did have somebody um, doing an active uh, political campaign. But you know, regulators didn't see this either. Why not?
2: Yeah, isn't that kind of uh, as important, if not more important, if I mean, the Federal Reserve, in addition to everything else, is the regulator in this case, right? And, like, what we're supposed to do in the wake of the financial crisis is to have stress tests and to mm-hmm. just kind of understand, is this bank vulnerable? Like, as a basic question, and there are a lot of really complicated things um, that uh, that, uh, that uh, the Fed or, or uh, that the SEC at various times can do at a moment, um, a lot of different types of tests. But this seems... As basic as it gets, is it is there an argument to be made that the Fed is more concerned with like these exotic box checkings as opposed to just going, hold on, they're completely unprepared to deal with a basic rate hike?
3: Well, I just saw something, um, a little snippet on Twitter from um, from the Fed about their stress tests, and they didn't test for rates going up or at least not a lot. That's and, a stressful
2: and, thing. Have you looked at the savings and loan crisis? What was that? It was a stress <laughs> test because rates went up after inflation and 30, you know, a, one third of all savings and loans failed uh, well, because yeah. of that.
3: So we were like, this bank was really dumb for not thinking interest rates go up. Well, the Fed didn't, it didn't occur to them either. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and not only that, I mean, if, I don't know if you remember a couple of months ago, the whole thing in the UK with the pensions and the mm-hmm. liability driven yep. investment. They did remind us.
2: Remind us by meeting me. Yeah. Yeah,
3: (laughs) this was like what broke Liz' trust was that they had a bunch of pension funds that um, were doing actually doing the interest rate hedging in theory that this bank should have done, but because they weren't getting a lot of return doing that when rates got low, they decided to borrow and then buy these bonds instead to get a higher return, and then um, interest rates went way up and they got in trouble. But apparently their regulator gave them some stress tests, but rates going up like a little bit because everyone's like, everyone seemed to think that rates couldn't go up a lot quickly. Anyway, if you actually look at the history of interest rates, that actually up until 40 years ago happened all the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Like big increases.
3: Well, when when shit goes down, Mm. like interest rates... Move around a lot. Yeah. And we just got really used to 40 years of very slow, stable interest rates, and people just became convinced that this was the norm. So we can look at Silicon Valley Bank and be like, why were you buying these bonds? But you know what? Like the Fed didn't think the rates would go up either. And honestly, like I've always been kind of weird about interest rates. Like I've always been obsessed with rising interest rates. And like I think I was considered a crank for years over this.
1: Mm-hmm. So what, what was your crankish view that has now been vindicated?
3: Well, I, I I like data and I just look at decades of interest rates and it's like, well, you know, 40 years of lower rates doesn't really make a cycle. So mm. things mm. change and things change quickly, particularly once inflation comes back, you know, interest rates go up.
1: What do you think about that? I mean, you look on Capitol Hill, right, and you have people that don't really think about Economics. They think about economics in a very political sense. And I'll say, you know, maybe someone like Elizabeth Warren, who was on the warpath, and that is not because she's a Native American. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she was on the warpath about um, the Fed, uh, you know, saying, your idea here is to, uh, you know, cool down an overheated economy by making people lose their jobs. What an asshole you are. And this is, of course, a tried-and-true method of just raising interest rates and trying to cool off the economy. A lot of people on left and right—so you have the populist right and the kind of Elizabeth Warren left saying this is absolute, you know, nonsense, number one. It's witchcraft, and it's, it hurts Americans. And then you actually see it, well, this is all essentially— a response to, and again, you can't blame the Fed for this, people should have seen this coming or should have hedged against this. But this is all about interest rates. I mean, was that the right decision in the long run? Or, you know, as somebody who cares about this stuff, did the Fed do the right thing in in enormous, like inflationary environment, which the inflation is still um, not great right now?
3: Yeah, I think what confuses people is this is like a false choice between inflation or unemployment. Because if you just let inflation run rampant, and and also becomes less predictable and yeah. high, that does a lot of damage to the economy too. So you can end up with high inflation and unemployment. And as the Fed keeps trying to explain to people, high inflation is bad for everyone. And while it, high unemployment is also not good, You know, it is fewer people and even unemployed people have to deal with high inflation. Mm-hmm. So, and also I think what a lot of people are missing, everyone seems to think that the Fed just controls all interest rates and they do control short-term interest rates. But if you have inflation get persistent in the economy, that also gets baked into interest rates. Mm-hmm. So even if the if the Fed is done raising rates, which some people, the markets seem to speculate that they are, then we just decide to live with five and a half percent inflation. Well, then bond prices, you know, bond yields are also going to bake in five and a half percent. So yeah. there's no real way to win this. You kind of have to sort of take that short-term pain. Hoping to get rid of inflation.
1: So, for people who are new to this, is that the only tool in the toolbox um, to combat inflation?
3: No. We could also uh, do less fiscal stimulus, but I don't <laughs>
1: yes, yes. <laughs> it has got us here in the first place, right? Which <laughs> <laughs> on this podcast, Allison, we believe that planes <laughs> should dump money over lots of neighborhoods. We'll pick yes. the neighborhoods, especially <laughs> um. ours. <laughs> so fiscal what? stimulus, you're saying, was a bad thing, or at a certain point, it was a bad thing. Well, we're still doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. Oof. So yeah, and we're we
2: definitely- likely. I mean, it. it, it you know this is likely to continue to some degree. I don't know about fiscal stimulus. I mean, just that we've ratcheted up to a certain level that that level is going to be maintained. And since um, the old age entitlements are going to require more money, um, there's going to have to be more like taxes to brought in uh, brought in for that. So that's going to do that as well. But like the short-term noises that you hear right now, uh, uh, unless I'm uh, mistaking them, um, is that the Fed is thinking about reducing rates in the climate of this bank thing um what looking in a not even a crystal ball but just like a plausibility in the next kind of month or two as a policy response uh what do you see i mean are we going to raise the fdic limit to five hundred thousand dollars uh do you you know uh, man why do you need to do tweet? that the fdic
1: just d- decided that everyone is taken care of i just i
2: i gotta <laughs> call i got moral hack here <laughs> There are there are certain people and I'm going to be nice and not name them, but certain people who've been like involved in tweeting about this in Silicon Valley. They just decided to tweet through it like they didn't stop. They didn't stop (laughs) tweeting. They didn't like (laughs) pause to reflect on how I don't know every person not named them. Um, finds them uh, loathsome the way that they're uh, they're yeah. uh, discussing this because um, as Allison but,
1: pointed out they all run companies that don't make money and it's, it's mystifying to all of us the rest it's, of us. I
2: I I mean I didn't sit on the board but I went to board meetings of a uh, of a nonprofit that has. A certain operating budget and uh, and and assets every year. Not large at all. Not a huge Silicon Valley company, but large enough to have a financial committee. And the financial committee uh, reports to the board at least once a year, maybe twice a year. And what does the financial committee do? It says, "Oh, okay, in this environment that we live in." Um, here is where we're spreading things with uh, the idea of what we do about risk. You know, we have this much in our own real estate. We're making sure that we have enough operating reserves for, you know, a year and a half or three and a half years or whatever. Um, We're mixing our portfolio from this to this because the world is like this. And you have all these clients at the Silicon Valley Bank saying, no, it's completely unreasonable to expect someone who has $500,000 in a bank to think about, How the bank is actually doing it. Everybody does it like it's 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 baffling to me how you wouldn't actually pay attention to the risk management of your money. Um, But uh, the question being, what do you think is a uh, plausible short term scenarios from especially government going forward?
3: Well, I mean, the hope is that this doesn't get worse. And I think the Fed is probably going to, at least in the next round, not raise rates. Although what they're going to do going forward is a big question. Based on every asset prices, it looks like people are expecting the Fed is pretty much done um, raising rates. Although then we're still stuck with inflation. The core inflation is still five and a half percent. So, um, uh I don't know what they do there. I think, you know, the Fed has been doing a lot of tough talk of we're going to do what it takes and we're going to raise rates. We're going back to 2%. But it's easy to say that when unemployment's 3.5% and you're not having a potential financial crisis. Mm. So this is going to be the final, like, the first big test of their credibility. Because when's the last time the Fed has really done anything bad to the – I mean, you can argue about their longer-term policy, but, like, done something in the short term that really harmed the economy? Like, it's been decades.
2: Mm. It's been Decades exactly, yeah. I mean, you were talking about how, um, yeah, you know, it is possible to have high, high, uh, inflation and high unemployment. It's like, yeah, some of us of a certain age that's just childhood, that's just like <laughs> yeah. our entire yeah. upbringing. Yeah. Uh, it feels like <laughs> yeah. as soon as you stop remembering, like we, uh, early on in in uh, my editorial tenure at Reason, again, um, this is uh, right when the financial crisis is happening, but I think even before. Uh, We ran an excerpt, um, and I'm blanking on the guy's uh, name, The Economist, uh, uh, a writer from uh, Washington Post. Uh, I want to say Isaacson, but it probably isn't. Um, At any rate, uh, he wrote a book called The Great Inflation, and uh, we wrote an excerpt called Lessons from the Great Inflation. And one of them I realized even then, like nobody younger than me realizes that between 1965 and 1980, inflation or crime were the number one, number two issues at all times. It never wasn't. Um, and that was true all the way up until it wasn't true. And then everyone forgot about it, <laughs> or at least they began the process of forgetting about it, which then became complete. Um, and the financial crisis was, was it precisely that yeah, people got, as you were saying earlier, got used to the idea of, of basically effectively zero interest rates and like, Oh, that's going to be like that forever. I just, it's, you shouldn't be surprised anymore, but like, uh, your amazement is refreshed that people whose professional lives depend on being smart um and understanding math um uh, will just take as a given um that uh oh yeah we're going to have this uh, zero interest rate thing uh uh you know kind of forever makes me uh, you know pack, try to package this into a question like there's a there's an insight in uh, Michael Lewis's The Big Short of that um A whole lot of, and I saw this too also in the dot com uh, bubble uh, and the run up to it and and the collapse. People up in the run up into April 2001 dot com bubble, they all knew it was a bubble. They all knew that all the valuations were were crazy. And I went around and I interviewed a bunch of these guys. I'm like, why are you inflating the bubble? It's like, because if I'm right about that uh, a, a year ahead of time, I lose a lot of money, right? You have to be right about that at the right time. Do you think that there's a lot of, investor or managerial sentiment that's just basically that you're like trying to trace the timing more than you're actually responding to the facts of numbers
3: no i think people just decided rates were low forever i mean and like i said a lot of smart people were saying that i think they just thought took it for granted that the cost of borrowing was going to be zero and that inflation was a problem for like central bankers who didn't know what they were doing in the 70s
2: my god uh since you studied like the the you know what happens when things uh, raise so what happens when things raise uh not just in terms of of policy and banks that are under stress but for the rest of us for people who want mortgages for the economy for whatever what what do you see as the thing that happens
3: well i mean we pay more to borrow i mean like you know mortgage rates are going to be higher um makes cost of living higher i mean everything we take debt out on credit cards car loans and I mean, I think it's been concerning for a while because everyone in the financial sector and in the household sector has just sort of gotten used to really low rates. Like people I know who want to buy a house are like, well, I guess I can take out a big mortgage now and refinance when rates go back to three. I'm like, they're not going back to
1: three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> but... but if, yeah. if you, the, so here's the thing that I'm on the fence about. And I see both sides of this. You know, and it, it is um, Silicon Valley... Bank being bailed out. Now the government's going to tell you it's not a bailout. Share- shareholders are not being bailed out. The executives are being fired, etc. Um, I want to read a quote to you from Citadel's Ken Griffin, and I think this was today. He said, "The U.S. is supposed to be a capitalist economy, and that's breaking down before our eyes. There's been a loss of financial discipline with the government bailing out depositors in full." Things are breaking down, says Ken Griffin, and this is the kind of moral hazard here that, that look, on the other side of this, and I'm interested in your take on this, on the other side of this is the government steps in soon, um, makes everybody whole, which is the euphemism for saying we're bailing you out, and everything is a little bit calmer. If we let it go, as we had in the past, things get crazy, and the long-term effects are really bad. Which side of that do you come down on? I mean, both seem to have a grain of truth to them.
3: Well, I'm mixed on it like you. Like, when I saw that this was going to happen, I, like, gasped and I felt, like, physically angry. But I still think it was the right thing to do. Um, One, like, they didn't find... Like, the hope was going into last weekend that they'd find a buyer. And they didn't, for a lot of reasons. People are speculating. One, that big banks last time... You know, effectively took on all the liability of the banks they bought and they mm-hmm. didn't want to do it again. There's another thing that like big banks apparently weren't allowed to bid because they were worried about market concentration to start with. So they didn't have a buyer. So a lot of people, anyway, maybe these weren't the most sympathetic people. You know, they if there was a bank run, the optics of that are bad and other banks could go down too. And then all of a sudden- Which has
1: happened. Signature Bank, exactly. um, Silvergate, which is a little less, it's not the same because it's a sort of crypto-y thing. And, you know, Credit Suisse looks like it's about to go in. The Swiss government stepped in in the past couple of hours, it they, seems. They
3: said so. I don't know if they have enough money to, but we'll see how bad it gets.
1: Uh, is, um, it, is it that Swiss? bad that the Swiss now. government doesn't have enough money?
3: Well, we don't know how bad. They actually have enough money to pay their deposits. And they actually, they're very liquid. It's their stock price and the fact they're not profitable. But I, I, I saw somewhere that um, the, um, the size of Credit Suisse is like three quarters of the size of Switzerland's GDP. So wow. if they had to do a massive bailout, they'd be in trouble. yeah wow. th- the thing is, I think where I see where the Fed was coming from, like this is their worst fear. They need to raise rates to bring down inflation. But when you raise rates, you increase the odds of a sort of major financial crisis, Mm -hmm. So they don't want to be in that position where they're having to choose between financial stability and inflation. So I think what was interesting was this whole like loan program where banks can uh, not like not mark. their. So, you know, they bought all these bonds and then the price of the bonds fell. And so this the problem was, is that, you know, normally banks don't always have to do mark to market. So acknowledge that their bond prices have fall, they can just say, well, we're going to hold it until it matures or maybe we'll sell it when the price goes back, whatever. So they can now uh, use those bonds as collateral at the price they paid for them rather than the price they're worth. Uh And I think that was important because I think that was the Fed trying to be like, oh, gosh, we don't want, you know, the whole market cratering because bond prices have fallen So I think that was an opportunity for them to try to stop the bleeding and not be in this difficult position. So it wasn't really about this one bank with people that no one's finding particularly sympathetic. Mm -hmm. It was that everyone else could get hurt. Or as I said, bigger banks like Credit Suisse. And if they go, you know, Deutsche Bank could go. And then Mm -hmm. then I don't know where we are.
1: The container. But you said that when you first heard that news that it was a bailout that, you know, isn't a bailout. <laughs> By the way, this is all, it it's comes back. Yeah, it's a bailout. I mean, it ultimately is baked into the price of everything. When? This money, it doesn't just, it's not invented out of, out of thin air. Um, money that was invented out of thin air got us into this position <laughs> in the first place. But you said you were angry when you heard that. What was the anger about? I mean, I know why I was angry and mine is from the day ending in why yeah it exactly exactly it was like i couldn't find my glasses like I, everything makes me angry but as an economist why were you angry
3: because it was just so much incompetence all around from the most irritating people in our economy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was everyone i hate it's all the Silicon Valley <laughs> bros who like who like were like into crypto and thought like economic relationships don't matter who didn't even bother to see how didn't even bother to have different bank accounts so they weren't so concentrated mm. and then you had a bank where they didn't even bother to have a risk manager for a year and we were bailing them all out it, it was infuriating but mm. it's a problem that's bigger than them unfortunately so it was the right thing to do
1: I, If can you explain one thing to me and our listeners if we allow them to collapse um, and don't bail them out, right? Only 11% of the depositors are, you know, sort of ordinary people. They're mostly Silicon Valleys. And this does have a ripple effect amongst a bunch of Silicon Valley startups who don't make anything of consequence and don't make any money anyway. What What is the actual, you know, downside of this? When When you have this knock-on effect, what would it be? Is it possible, and I'm just spitballing here, is it possible that they collapse and we say, oh, it sucks to be everybody in that bank, and that's it?
3: Well, I think if that would have happened, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I think the concern was the optics of a bank failing and people not getting their deposits back could mean other runs on other banks.
1: And uh, and people getting not getting their payroll apparently too that you know a lot of it, it comes through this bank, right?
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: well, it, I I don't want to like I don't want
2: to make you feel bad uh, Michael about this question, but like Vox was at that bank. Vox would not have been able <laughs> to make payroll.
1: I, I mean, can we call the Fed and see if they can reverse the decision? <laughs> is there something we can do to help just, precipitate I'm, the downfall? I'm of it? Let's just pick winners and losers because the government does that a lot. Let's pick the no, people that should be bailed I, out and shouldn't. I think, <laughs> I
2: think that uh, it's worth thinking about what would happen in that case, which is that everywhere where there are people who have more than $250,000 in the bank, they would look at the bank and check under the hood in a way that they haven't done since forever, um, because well, you know, there's going to be a backstop, and so that would be an interesting process. Uh, there would be uh, suddenly a lot of scrutiny to other banks that are overexposed into long-term bonds and haven't like figured out a way to hedge against it. Um, there would also be a lot of people, and this is the reason why this won't happen. Who will just say, "Oh, okay, I can't do that. I have to like take out." everything that overhangs from $250,000 and put it into a different bank. And since a lot of people would be making that call at the same time, the banks won't have enough cash at hand. And then you have an actual kind of a like bank run and that's why they stop it. But isn't that ultimately the sort of middle point of my uh, theory there kind of where is a a more healthy place to be where consumers who don't have a guarantee actually (laughs) pay attention to the policies (laughs) of their banks, Wouldn't that be a more helpful thing than playing whack-a-mole, this shit?
3: Well, I mean, essentially, you're asking every individual to do a stress test. And all banks are long-duration. I mean, that is their model. So I think that'd be a lot to ask. But I think it isn't too much to ask people if don't have $250,000 in one account. Mm. Like, I understand for business reasons that can be more convenient if you're a startup, uh, to SVC's funded startup. But, you know, I think it's not too much to ask to, as I said, maybe not have $250,000 in one account. Mm.
1: You wrote a column recently, and I want you to uh, expand on it um, for those of us who don't have a Bloomberg account (laughs) and are trying to get beyond the paywall, um, which is relevant here. And the headline was, and I know, and and, and, ladies and gentlemen, you must understand this, um, people don't write their own headlines. So oftentimes when people ask me about something, there's a headline... um, well, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Because you demand it and you were the editor of reason. Um, we're probably all wrong about interest rates. This is before this happened. This is before all of this nonsense overwhelmed us a couple weeks before. What was the purpose of that, of that piece? Why are we all wrong about interest rates?
3: Because everyone thinks that they're going to go back down. So there's this theory in economics that there's like this natural rate of interest. Um, it refers to a short term rate, which is, you know, different from long term rates, but just, you know, that for now. And this, this, but this is this natural rate of interest determines has a big influence on other interest rates too. And for and I said this isn't just you know people in finance or Silicon Valley people like really like top top economists have been arguing that this rate had been trending down for years because it was the natural rate that's where the market put it at. And I said when people blame the Fed for low rates, it's not really all their fault. There are a lot of market forces bringing down rates. And the reason why everyone was saying well we can expect (laughs) low rates forever is because the population is aging. And um, I never understood why that made sense. Mm. And I've been asking a lot of people, like, why do we assume that? And it's like something like, well, you know, as people realize they're going to live longer, so they save more. But I was like, well, that doesn't make sense because we haven't saved enough for retirement. Not the individuals, but like... Social Security is underfunded. Every government's pension is underfunded, so mm-hmm. it seems like we're going to be issuing. The debt. French
1: are on the streets about this right now of lowering the yeah. retirement age, and their their annual uh, their annual tradition Sheep of shutting them. down the government uh, <laughs> yeah. because they want to lower it from uh, fifty seven to fifty six or something. Yeah,
3: yeah, and I mean, yeah. So people, so we're going to probably take out a lot of debt to pay for our spend everyone's retirement. So that would bring interest rates up, not down, because you have more supply of debt on the market rather than less.
1: And, and what do you think about um, stimulus spending? I mean, I think that, that it seems as if, and, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, that most economists agree. And you as an economist, uh, I'm, I'm interested in what you think about the spending that happened under both Trump and Biden as a response to COVID people were not at work. People were forced Uh, by government diktat to stay at home, but then it keeps going, and then it keeps going more. Was there a point where there was a natural cutoff? I mean, did you agree with the first bit of stimulus spending, which is the government printing a ton of money and basically just sending people checks? And was there a cutoff at which you said, wait, hang on, this doesn't make a a lot of sense, and this seems a little more political than, than, you know, um, a good, sound economic strategy.
3: Yeah, pretty much the American Rescue Plan in two thousand one, twenty one. Just, I mean, every economist I knew, right or left, were emailing. And we're like, this is insane. This is a really bad idea. That's when Larry Summers came out. Yes, he was yes. always Mister Stimulus, and he's like, we shouldn't do this. This is going to cause inflation. Mm-hmm. Like when you've lost him, um, you know, it was a bad idea. So yeah, I agree that we should have definitely been doing a lot of stimulus when we shut everything down and a ton of people lost their jobs. And even the Fed's extraordinary pumping money into the economy when uh debt markets were literally freezing in 2020 made a lot of sense. But why we kept doing this in 2021? Like the Fed was still buying every almost every mortgage-backed bond in 2021 when like housing markets were on fire. Yeah. Like that was everything we did then was crazy. But what we did before made sense. We just we just do these things. We don't know how to stop. Was it a
1: political decision though? I mean, I can imagine that so many people take the 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 you know like conservatives do it too and and liberals can uh, you know accuse them of this when you know there's something Katrina happens and they show up and say we need charter schools or something mm-hmm. let's let's rebuild these schools charter and when this is happening you have people step into that breach and say I'm Elizabeth Warren or in that sort of end of the party and says, you know, we're like modern monetary theory. Let's just keep spending. It doesn't matter. Is it Was it a political decision or was it no decision at all? I mean, where did that actually come from?
3: I, I guess so. I mean, it must have been political. I felt like through the pandemic, we're like, this was hard on everyone. Let's give them money to make it better. Yeah. I mean, and I think it was just largely political. And also this pervasive belief that had become very common that we could do anything we wanted and interest rates wouldn't go up and inflation wouldn't come back. I mean yeah. I mean we make fun of modern monetary theory, but like to some extent, everyone kind of bought it.
1: Explain to listeners, because I mean, when I first came across this, I said these are people that have some sort of mental illness. They're what? not they're like, no, no, they're professors at universities and they're now, you know, becoming quite successful and popular as a you know, 19. nineteen. What is modern monetary theory? Just the the, the, the sort of capsule version of it.
3: I mean, I don't actually fully, I mean, I'm sure whatever I say, the the fans would say I'm not describing it right, but pretty much that, you know, you can print as much money as you want. That's right.
1: (laughs) That's the best description of it. And it doesn't matter, right?
3: (laughs) Well, you can have inflation, but you can just do some taxes and there's no real differentiation between different interest rates. And it's sort of like just sort of an idea, yeah. And you always go back to the idea of, well, like, a go- the government's not like a household who faces a budget constraint. And it's like, that's true. We do face different budget constraints. But we still face a budget constraint.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, and as I said, like, granted, I mean, it's definitely considered a fringe thing. Like, you know, some professors got into it, but I wouldn't say they were mainstream. But to some extent, even mainstream professors were very into this idea that interest rates would be low forever. And yeah. inflation was something we'd conquered.
1: And the reason a, that it's a fringe thing that you hear it all the time is because um, so many people in the media are fringe people <laughs> that are speaking. Well, they, or else. have adopted,
2: have adopted <laughs> yes. fringe economic beliefs in, in a, kind of a centrist guise. I mean, one of the things that I remember seeing a lot of kind of uh, in when there was austerity politics in uh, the early, like post Financial crisis, early Obama administration, when he was always wrestling with Republicans, uh, the Tea Party about debt and deficits. Um, you had a bunch of people, center-lefty types, saying it's irresponsible to not take on huge amounts of debt right now because the prices are so low of borrowing um, that this is the time to do it. Um, this is really the time to do it, and that and that, you know they said that a lot then, and they didn't have a lot of power actually. Obama. Yep. had more power republicans had more power there was a a sense of um even people back then uh almost took seriously the idea that we should re- reform uh old age entitlements which is now just completely off the table really uh as a serious uh, conversation but that then fringe your idea has now become at least a lazy default from people like uh mm-hmm. and now you know it's it's actually not that cheap to borrow all this money it's a i i don't know exactly when it will be that the borrowing cost on an annual basis in the federal government eclipses the military uh budget but it's getting close it's and it's going to happen soon and then like that's a that's a like a a, a bar a trajectory on a graph that's really kind of hard to reverse um can you give us a sense allison of uh of some horrible, awful thing uh, in the near future that's likely to happen that our brains are too small to wrap our heads around.
3: You mean like a debt crisis in America? Yeah, <laughs> uh,
2: not even a debt crisis. Just like like uh, putting ourselves in in a in a pickle. I mean, I, I think that some too often in times like this, people like immediately go to the Weimar Republic in a wheelbarrow full of cash and mm-hmm. uh, billion dollar notes and whatever. Um, and that's and that's kind of a, uh, an apocalyptic fantasy. When the reality is more like, oh, it's just going to be you're going to have 17 lost decades in a row um, and things are just going to get kind of crappier. Um, but like what's what what awful looking graphs are keeping you up at night right now?
3: Um, Pretty much the entitlements, the fact that we are determined not to find a good way to pay for them. I mean, to some degree, we're still skating by and we probably will because we are the world's safe asset. So. People are always going to want to buy bonds, probably for the rest of our lifetime. Um, we are
2: the greater fool theory.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I just we don't deserve it at all. But there's no real <laughs> other contender. Like they're not going to buy German. <laughs> the least
1: worst option. Yeah, yeah. It,
3: we're we're going to be that. So I mean, we we have some hairy hairy stuff ahead, particularly as. Um, you know, entitlements come due, and uh, people seem to be in complete denial that rich people can pay for everything. That's just not true. That the numbers just don't add up.
1: But but it's not even close. It's by a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, if you taxed the richest people in America, the confiscatory Warren rate, you get you're taking about a percentage point off that, aren't you? At a hundred percent,
2: It would not be enough. It,
1: yeah. I mean, what is at a hundred percent? It would be. I mean. W- what would that actually... Because then people do think that that's... Uh, you know, I mean, people don't care about economics. I mean, that's why you're in a profession that is a good one, because you actually can explain to people something that they know nothing about, and they don't care to know anything about it. They just say things like, the rich don't pay their fair share. Well, what is their fair share? They pay quite a bit, actually. What is it? The You know, the top 1% play, pay 50% of America's taxes, something like that. Yeah. Um, federal but, but like taxes. Yeah, federal, but... That is, you know, when you say something like this, like, you know, the rich can't, we can't tax the rich out of this. That's just purely a political argument, right? I mean, that's not, no economist says, well, no, if you tinker with the numbers. Well, I mean,
3: there's a couple of French ones who would say so, but <laughs> oh, yeah. yes,
1: yes, we know, we know those ones.
0: Yes.
3: Yeah, but but no one else really does. I mean, the numbers don't add up. I think the last estimate I saw, if we did all of the Warden Sanders plan, that would it be like what ten trillion dollars over ten years, and our deficit's going to actually be eighteen, mm-hmm. and that's even before we get into Social Security trust funds if you believe mm-hmm. it running out. So, I mean, when people say so, like we can just remove the income cap. That Social Security taxes are um, subject to dealing with the Social Security sh- short of making that financially whole again would require a twenty three percent new tax, twenty three percentage points on income above one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Like that's mm-hmm. a lot of money.
1: It's a lot of money. In and you're in a profession also in which you never have people in government. I, I can think of a few in the, in the past, but it's been it's been a number of years who listen to you and align with you because they're thinking about economics. It just happens sometimes that you align and sometimes that you don't. And it took me a long time to realize that liberals, conservatives, in, in, when it comes to politics, don't actually have any serious, um, you know, principled economic arguments. So w- right now you're talking about um, pensions, right? You're talking about uh, Social Security. Yeah. L- you've seen what Donald Trump has said in the past month, attacking... His soon to be rivals in the primary saying, Don't you dare touch Social Security, because that's just a call, a populist call to old people, please vote for me. And, you know, I, you know, Matt and I have talked about this before when I covered the Tea Party at the time. I thought it was an apocryphal story. It turned out that I did see someone that did have the, uh, you know, government hands off my Social Security sign. And people do believe this stuff just comes out of nowhere. And you can get now modern Republicans. Um, to say, don't touch this stuff. I mean, is that terrifying in some ways that when you are actually looking at the numbers of this, because these people aren't looking at the numbers, they're looking at politics only.
3: Yeah. And honestly, it is somewhat new. I mean, yeah. at least Obama like, paid lip service. Do we have to do something about this? This is a problem. Yeah. But starting with Trump and now Biden, it's just complete like denial. Mm. And, like, when you write about this stuff, you get, you get all these sort of emails and tweets saying, you know, this isn't a problem. Like, people, I don't know. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance around pensions because people on the one hand say, well, Social Security won't be there for me. It's running out of money. But they also say we can't touch it.
1: Mm. Yeah. The one final political question I'll ask you and then um, we'll let you go is that, and I don't know if you know the answer to this. And Matt and I were talking about this on text. Is that there was a uh, this starts happening with Silicon Valley Bank and you hear lots of conversations about interest rates and about what the Fed is doing, and then things get political pretty quickly. And then it was a modification in 2019, I believe, or 18, to Dodd Frank that the the head of Silicon Valley Bank was apparently lobbying for, and because of this, I saw Chris Hayes was just doing this last night. Because of this, this is all Donald Trump's fault. But at the same time, I'm going to point something out to Um, Barney Frank, who's been getting a little bit of shit for being on the board of one of these banks, um, was quoted today in The Wall Street Journal saying, all of his liberal comrades are saying, this is what did it. Had we had these things in place, as Dodd-Frank asked Barney Frank... Uh, if these were in place, everything would be fine. He says, nobody has shown me any evidence of systemic or other kinds of fraud that would have been prevented without the 2018 rollback. Um, and he said, lifting the threshold, Mr. Frank said was a good change that quote saved smaller banks, a lot of paperwork. And he said that he was saying this and, and supported this change prior to his employment with signature bank. (laughs) He was on the board of signature bank getting paid quite a bit. What do you make of this now seemingly political argument that um this is Donald Trump's fault?
3: Well, no, I mean, as we said before, this was pretty obvious. I mean this yep. was a real problem largely uh i mean to some degree regulation but also supervision yeah like this was is this a, we said this was not complicated. They had deposits that were very uh fragile uh especially in a rising rate environment, and they had assets that were also very sensitive to interest rates. I mean, and apparently they were their uh, deposits were, like, by many multiples, growing in 2021, 20, 22. And anyone who... You didn't need to have the level of full Dodd-Frank scrutiny to notice that that might be a problem. Hmm. So I think it's largely a supervision problem, which is, like, largely enforcing these rules, and also a stress test that didn't allow for interest rates to rise. Like, you don't need the whole hust of Dodd-Frank to you know, pick up on this is a problem.
2: I remember in uh, in 2008 again, um, uh, wanting to figure things out, and we heard a lot back then that it was the change of the Glass Steagall banking regulation yep. in the late 90s that paved the way for all this to happen. And it sounded plausible when people said it because you know Glass Steagall it's a complicated uh, hyphen, and uh, <laughs> and it must must be real. And I I tasked. Catherine Mangu Ward uh, I then wasn't even a managing editor, but just like, hey, look, um, I want to find something out there in which it was a libertarian's fault. I want us to like not just to <laughs> fall on our sword, but like, you know, say that is the deregulation because everyone kept saying it was deregulation caused this thing to happen. Go find that. Treat it seriously. Um, and if, if it was true, let's examine it, because this is we need to to challenge our own side on this. And she came back with. Basically, an oh, my God, it's incredible how dishonest people are being about this, how how little relevance it has to do with the underlying problems that are being discussed, which are maybe have other regulatory issues associated with them and probably do. But that's just not the thing Um, it is as you know it's kind of like uh, doing uh cherry picking without outrage archaeology right you find the one thing there um that looks like it might be bad and you just pin the blame on it joe biden did it th- just yesterday when he like gave the reassuring talk to america that everything's everything's going to be fine he brought up trump and the relaxation of dodd frank in 2018 or 19 and that's you know and then we're gonna we're gonna fix that and that's gonna take care of it um I I would just challenge, not challenge, I'd beseech people, listeners, uh, when they hear that, just ask the follow-up question. um, Okay, how? How did that thing happen? It could be. It could very well be, um, in theory, that that relaxation of that rule had some direct impact. It is so weird that we haven't seen any convincing explanation so far, at least I haven't, of how. So ask the follow-up question as opposed to just consuming it as a fact from a president or a Chris Hayes or anybody else.
1: <laughs> I don't want to be mean to Chris. I'll add one final thing of it. Um, I saw an interesting chart today of deposits um, in American banks over the past sort of 20 years and watching the insane, like almost doubling of deposits in the past, you know, three or four years. It's like a nutty increase, not doubling, but it's a lot. And uh, where does that money come from? I, I'm just going to, it's not people uh, making good crypto bets. I assure you of Stimmies. Um, stimmies. Some stimmies is what we call them here in, in the fifth. Um, Allison, we've kept you uh, for longer than we said we would, but um, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. We will be reading your Bloomberg column. You should go. And by the way, subscribe. I was complaining that I couldn't, because, uh, you know, I used to have a job and I had all the, I had all the logins. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't have those anymore. So now I have to start paying for things. But, you know, I also don't have a job at the moment. So it's 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 very complicated. Uh, I need an economist to uh, tell me how to navigate these very choppy waters. <laughs> but uh, Alison Schrager, um, thank you for joining us. And um, we'll have you back soon.
3: Oh, anytime. It's fun. We, 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 we know
0: of new methods of attack. Right, well, that was
1: depressing. <laughs>
0: <I> <laughs> Periodically, mean, we have
1: to do that, right? Everything's it, collapsing. And uh, let's talk about it.
2: <laughs> it's uh, it's funny. She was using the phrase uh, or like talked about um, how we're all in denial uh, and such. I wrote a cover story for reason in 2016, back when it was clear that it was Trump versus Clinton for the presidency, and it was called debt denialists. And it's it wasn't even necessarily pointed the figure at those two, although definitely those two, um, but just that that whole era and it was long, um, as you know, and you think I'm crazy. Um, uh, I, I see read too many uh, State of the Union addresses. It was mentioned in every State of the Union address between 1997 and 2013 that we can no, yeah. can no longer uh, afford our, thing. <laughs> our entitlement uh, situation going forward. And we have to do something about it. As uh, Barack Obama said in 2009, can't keep kicking the can down the road. And that just vanished from view. Uh, and it wasn't Trump that made it vanish yeah. it was basically 2014 it was after all of the debt ceiling negotiations after that was all of the politics in america with the tea party and also with uh, occupy wall street you know we talked about on the uh on the uh second sunday members only episode that paying subscribers have full access to yes we, yes. we mentioned Unlike that uh camille uh went down with some uh, reason tv people because he used to live down there during uh, zuccotti park days and interviewed people but we forget like that bailout created two anti-bailout movements one on the left and one on the right and they yeah. uh, impacted the way that uh like uh, headline politics happened in this country for a long time um until it kind of like people got sick of it it worked itself out. And um, by people getting sick of it, I don't mean just voters. I mean, like Mitch McConnell in particular got sick of it. He didn't want to do it anymore. People Um, get
1: sick of things in politics. I mean, it's incredible what people were doing and wanting to do for Ukraine versus now. I mean, it's just like they're just exhausted by it. They don't care about it anymore. You know, debt stuff is is always the same. I wonder in the short term, though, um, if the populist movement... Will get some wind beneath its wings because of the stuff you see. Like these guys are fucking assholes, right? They are getting enormous uh, uh, bonus checks. I saw that. Uh, I think Elizabeth Warren was saying you should give it back. And and you know what? I agree. That they like literally like days before, people are losing their savings and fretting about it. And this guys get they, they I think they had out eighty five million dollars and. In, um, and bonuses. And it's like kind of sickening, right? And this kind of thing makes people angry. And when you see like the, the thing about, you know, Allison was right about this and I'm glad she pointed it out, was that all these companies, these tech startups, like 98%, like they don't end up making any money. It's just this weird kind of mystery thing where money just pops up out of nowhere and then it disappears and people buy houses and then the, the company disappears and then they form a new company. And it's just people are really annoyed by it. And annoyed by the people who got you know, rich in crypto by unbelievable manipulation, by the way. I think there's going to be a story about that in 10 years' time, about how that you know the average investor was convinced to come into crypto. A lot of people did fairly well at it. But there was other things. I mean, Guo Wengui, this guy that I interviewed, Steve Bannon's friend, uh, Miles Kwok, otherwise known as the billionaire Chinese guy um, who... Uh, lives in New York. He bought the most expensive apartment in New York at one point, and he sent me a, a his lawyer sent me an email that in the piece that That's I did about song. him, uh, I got the price wrong. And he said I said it was like sixty eight million. He was like, no, it was seventy two. Like, he wanted it oh, to be God. higher. It was, like, incredible. That's but like the Don, the
2: Don King, like, uh, no, I wasn't uh, assault. I was manslaughter that I was convicted. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I want the real charge because it's better. But, you know, th- I was reading the indictment against him. The feds came down on him. Like, wh- one of the things is a bullshit cryptocurrency. Himalaya something or other, and it's just a, an elaborate scheme. And there's a, so many of these things, and so many people. We're talking about the people losing um, their money at banks like this, um, which they're going to be quote unquote made whole. But you see this whole era from pretty much from the pandemic of people losing vast amounts of money in various like crypto scams and, you know, other financial scams. And people get really tired of seeing the winners and the way that they win is because, I mean, that's why this, this, um, you know, GameStop thing was such a, a big story. It was, it was kind of a bullshit story. I think I pointed this out at the time that it really wasn't true. That this small investor on Wall Street bets this re- subreddit, who were getting together to, you know, um, um, you know, everyone was shorting GameStop because it's a terrible a terrible company, and they were just driving the price up. And you know, killing all these short sellers. There was not a lot of truth to that because people who saw that and made the most money were institutional investors who were like part of the pushback too. If they can screw the the, the short sellers too, the short squeeze can put on the short squeeze too. They're going to be better at it than anybody else, and that's what you see so much That these little things happen, and these other guys who have so much money, they have the technology, the speed, uh, and they can do it and make. Obscene amounts of money, and people get really angry about this. I, I mean, I'm one of them. That I just I think like, that there are, you
2: know, are four. There are four categories. So we'll see the. Uh,
1: I'm, by, by just going to say, I, I'm. We'll see the political ramifications of this later.
2: There's, I think, there's, there's four categories of contempt here. Uh, the first is the managerial contempt of the people who ran to the Com Valley Bank and didn't see all of the ways in which they were a visible outlier. And I, I commend people to look at the, the blog spot blog, if I'm not mistaken, of John Cochrane from the Hoover Institute. He's written a couple of really good things, just kind of, you know, summarizing literature and showing some charts, um, but spelling it out in the similar way that Allison spelled it out. It's really like a, as basic of a story as possible. They just yeah. really screwed up. So contempt for that bad management, contempt for regulators who like, what are you even doing? if that is (laughs) you're you're supposed to be regulating and that's what that's like the basics of regulating everything else is um, you know arcane and whatever but like if you if stress tests don't include we're going to raise rates largely highly uh, after a long flat environment like you need to Mm -hmm. like fire 90 percent of the regulators and start over like what the hell are you even doing um but also special contempt Because they're more visible on my goddamn Twitter feed um, are people who, again, decided just to tweet straight through it, um, who largely have skin in the game through their own companies, through their own accounts. And like, this is not a bailout, even though I'm Mm -hmm. against, you know, like government intervention in every other single case. um, This is the Fed's fault, not my fault. (laughs) No, Um, the
1: incredible thing about this is that the Fed is doing this, right? Fed has interest rates at zero, and as Allison points out, for far too long. And those rates are eventually going to go up. I mean, as somebody who was like, do I get an, an, an arm, an, an adjustable rate mortgage? Do I get a fixed mortgage? Like, You're looking, you're like, no, these rates are going to go up eventually. You cannot blame f- the Fed for doing something that you should have realized is possible, right? You say, well, they raised interest rates, and it's their fault. Well, no, you put all of your eggs in one basket, assuming that interest rates weren't going to go up, which is a bad assumption, a stupid assumption. And you see them going up by 50 basis points, 75 basis points, 100 basis points, over and over and over again. And now you're trying to negotiate that in March? I mean, really? So yes, maybe the Fed's policy was the wrong one, but you didn't have to, you know, put everything into bonds that we're reliant upon interest rates. That's your fault. That's we not their all,
2: fault. We all live in an environment that is affected by the Fed. We all might have our mm-hmm. own idiosyncratic personal ideas about the wisdom of the Fed policy, how much the Fed should be rolled back, if not ended. Fine. Yeah. But um, if you manage money even if you have money over a certain level, um, it's up to you to figure out how to operate in that world as opposed to complain that, oh, the Fed said that it would probably only raise interest rates this much, but then they raise it that much, so it's their fault that my money, like, no, dude, no. That's not how any of that works. I have no, yeah.
1: yeah. I mentioned it briefly, and I'll mention it one more time because I think it's an important story that's totally forgotten about. I mean, by the way, the the CEO of the, of Silicon Valley Bank was on the board of the San Francisco Fed, which is pretty interesting. Um, but I don't think it means a ton, but it's interesting. But Silicon Valley Bank went to Goldman Sachs for the bailout. Like, m- let's, let's make a deal here. Uh, Goldman Sachs cannot come to a deal with um, Silicon Valley Bank. So when Silicon Valley Bank creates all of this chaos by dumping all of these underwater bonds, who buys them? Golden sacks Sachs. Golden Sachs. And they made $100 million in fees on it. $100 million. What incentive do they have to bail these people out and help them out and keep this bank solvent? None. Because, hey, maybe we're just going to buy. Is that a conspiracy that's real? Probably not. Maybe they weren't thinking that far ahead, and maybe it was only afterwards they said, well, just sell them to us. But it does look a bit dodgy. And that's how this stuff works. I think this is how people process it. And, you know, I think this is ultimately a victory for the populace, uh, which I think is unfortunate, but we have an important story to get to. You pointed this out, Matt, and I need you to tell our dear listeners about this. So one of the more um, important stories uh, that I've, I've heard recently, and uh, this is Joe Biden who, um, in an interview with, was it who was it? Oh, Cal it penn. Cal penn Yes, who I, Cal got penn. Dr- I got drunk with one night in in, in Iowa.
2: Remember when he was um, funny? Uh, he was very uh, very
1: nice guy. Yeah, he worked for very, the Obama administration, so he got a little serious for a bit. But
2: yeah, but, uh, and doesn't that uh, you know? We all age in different ways. But uh, yeah, anyways, yeah. uh it, it was shown on uh, Comedy Central on uh, March thirteenth, and you can in fairness, you could see Cal Penn kind of going, oh, huh. Uh, So he uh, (laughs) asked President uh, Biden about uh, what his evolution was like on marriage equality, right? Because Joe Biden, let us not ever forget, uh, when he was vice president of the Obama administration, forget what year it was, I think maybe um, 2013-ish, he sort of like uh, did a Biden moment where he came in and said, you know, I don't see anything wrong with two fellas getting married (laughs) or whatever the quote was. <laughs> uh,
1: Norm MacDonald, two fellows, uh, getting married. There.
2: <laughs> Hevel of fellas. Did, Joe Biden, um, did kind of like a, a gaffe trial balloon, whatever at that moment, which really broke the dam in terms of, especially elected democratic, uh, willingness to do what you kind of knew where they wanted to go, which is to support gay marriage, just full stop. Um, that was an important thing that happened. So Cal Penn asks him, you know, what was your evolution like on marriage equality? Uh, biden responds with something that cal penn god love him uh just like tried to keep his face straight mm-hmm. and he says i can remember he's a exactly- president
1: by the way you shouldn't keep your face straight. you should actually like attack him back but this shows well, you how everybody understands that he's a frail old man and it looks bad and this is an <laughs> but t- actor
2: but tell us an actor who was in the obama administration doing an interview on comedy central of a president who's <laughs> given enough. like no interviews
0: <laughs> i can remember exactly where my uh, epiphany was okay. I hadn't thought much about it to tell you uh-huh. the truth and I was a senior in high school and my dad was dropping me off and I remember about to get out of the car and I looked to my right and two well-dressed men in suits kissed each other I mean they gave each other a kiss and then one went looked like he was heading to the DuPont building and one looked like he headed to the Hercules Corporation building and I'll never forget I turned and looked at my dad he said, Joey, it's simple they love each other it's simple. No, I'm not joking. It's simple. They love each other, and it's never been. It's 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 never been. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter whether it's whether it's same sex or a heterosexual couple. You should be able to be married. What is the problem?
2: Biden says, I, I can know. remember exactly when my, e- I can remember exactly when my epiphany was he, just, just as an interstitial, when you start saying exactly, um, and you're 80,000 years old, uh, this is going to be a problem. Whatever. The other looked like he was headed to the Hercules corporation building. Okay.
1: Uh, <laughs> and, like a 1940 uh, radio play
2: I'm going and to the Hercules I,
1: building. See, <laughs>
2: Joey, it's simple. They love each yeah. other.
1: That, it's literally never happened. This is the, like, this
2: is like <laughs> on its face. It was like, Holy shit, dude. No, That's, stop
1: it. Please literally just stop yeah. Joey. Joey. Did he also <laughs> tell the story where he was the one driving and it wasn't his, so, his dad wasn't there.
2: So, uh, get uh, Glenn Kessler. Uh, I have had, and we have had, and many people have had, uh, criticisms of the fact checking, uh, industry the mini yeah. micro genre within uh, yes. major publishing, publishing houses, politifact, all this stuff. Um, uh, by largely, I mean, give credit
1: to Mark Hemingway, who, um, I think was yes. the first piece that I ever read criticizing this. And it was a good piece.
2: He wrote a really good one. I wrote one that wasn't as good, but uh, for reason, like in 2013, uh, how the, the fact checking press gives the president to pass. Um, and, uh, where it was just, you know, it's very, very obviously loaded where they are pointing, their fact checking. We've heard us talk about it a lot. But Glenn Kessler uh, from the Washington Post I think is the best at this. Yeah, um yeah. and not even just on like on a consistent basis, but he will go make some mistakes, very for sure very very thoroughly uh into some specific issues and just do a really good honest job uh, compared to everybody else. So he has a piece from today we're recording this on Wednesday March 15th. Uh, where he goes back and basically finds every time Joe Biden has told this story. And, oh, my God, it has changed so many times that at least on one of those times, Joe Biden was the father.
1: (laughs) Joe Biden was the guy kissing. He was Uh, was in a well-dressed suit. I saw these two guys jerking each other off in the bushes. (laughs) (laughs) One of them was Corn
2: Pop, bad dude. Uh, I, uh, he wrote it in his book, uh, called, oh which of course God. the book is called Promise Me Dad. If you ever, and, and most people Promise don't, and that's dad. fine. Oh, God. If you ever like subject yourself to Joe Biden's speeches that he gives literally every week, mm-hmm. it's just all like this. He's just yeah. like, and so my old man used to say, you don't give people a hand up, you give them a hand sideways. It's like, what? You give them a ham sandwich. <laughs> you give them a hand job, you
1: see? And he said, you know what, Joey? That's the way it should be. That's fine. <laughs> It's all
0: right. Uh, Have him do it. Have him push it. (laughs) So in
1: 2014,
2: Biden told the New York Times, this is Glenn Kessler's writing, and it's pretty good, a very different version for a lengthy article that detailed his evolution on same-sex marriage. In this essence, Biden was the father. He described how one of his sons looked up at him quizzically after seeing two men headed off to work, kiss each other goodbye on a busy street corner. I said, they love each other, honey. And that was it. So it was never anything that was a struggle in my mind. The other thing that Glenn Kessler does that's good in this article is he points out all of the times
1: that well, Joe he said Biden he opposed gay marriage.
2: <laughs> on the record, like yeah. voted for the Defense of Marriage Act. <laughs> the, uh,
1: the fucking the debate with uh, Sarah Palin. Gwen Eiffel. It's like, do you, do you support gay marriage? He's like, it just one answer, one word answer, no. I no. And then he was like, and then he told the story. And it was an amazing story. He said to Gwen Ifill, one time when I was with my great grandfather, he was fought in the first world war. We drove by these four guys that were in the bushes, just <laughs> jerking each other off. And I said, Grandpa, what are they doing? And he said, son, it's disgusting. And if it should ever come up in your political career that these people want to get married and do this at home and do this everywhere, you say no. And he said that that's when I my mind was made up
2: so in crazy. 1987, back when Biden was having a special season about telling fantastic stories. Uh, it's always the details in this that are great. Yeah. Right? Like the yeah. little the little asides. It's so good. Uh, this was not about gay marriage, of course, because that was totally off the table unless you were, I don't know, a libertarian or like an actual progressive Democrat back in the day. It's like, why shouldn't gay people get married, which is what I have been my entire life Moynihan has been, except when he was punching fags in, in, in like, no, uh, that's, Massachusetts that's not, growing up. The, I
1: was being punched and being called a fag, sorry. Oh,
2: <laughs> so, oh right. Yeah, I, yeah, always. It's hard yeah, to why keep I up. I've,
1: I've hated homophobia for very personal reasons for a very long time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I got, I got, yeah, <laughs> uh, very similar things. Anyways, in 87, he tells the LA Times, uh, this is just sort of like a, to, to illustrate that there's family tolerance towards the gay uh, in 87. Uh, uh, there's, uh, the, there was, uh, he tried to put off a visit to a gay couple that were strong supporters of the senator and shared an apartment at a Delaware beach. And his dad tells him, my dad said, look, damn it. You're my son, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, they're good people. It's important to me that you meet them. Where the hell have you been raised? <laughs> like
1: None of this happened. You go you up there doing? and you make out
2: with the first one who opens the door. You're not my son. <laughs> this is the best part of the whole piece. In addition to
1: like, just actually
2: detail. So many all things I have times. to cut
1: out there, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> That's it's fine.
2: It was, oh, it's not the pay for one no uh no we're, we're, we're like working yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: I'll, uh, I'll put ask the full one the unexpurgated one on the on the behind the paywall so sign up asked for comment the white house provided a statement from kevin a
2: muñoz who identified himself as an openly gay white house spokesperson quote
1: get, you like, know they found him like do we have a gay guy around here like get can you put your name on this yeah He's like, I, like totally yeah sure
2: uh, like President Biden wrote in his book, he was moved by what he saw and he is deeply proud of the historic progress he has achieved fighting for the right of LGBTQ Americans. He knows the progress we have made as a country against hate needs to continue not to be rolled
1: back. If you were instrumental in or helping move the ball down the field in gay marriage, right? to use a bad sports metaphor, just stick with that. That's good. We get Super credit for story. That. Great story. But then every time he has this unbelievable habit of just f- being in fantasy world. And I don't even think it's malicious. We're like, I'm going to make up the story because he repeats them so much. But it's not like something you would, you would workshop. And everyone's like, I have a great one. So you're with your dad and it's 1942. <laughs> and these guys are going off to fight the Japanese and like they just start, you know, making out in the street and your dad's like, Awesome. And I was like, yeah, totally. And that's the story. That's no way that that's how this stuff happens. I do believe that he thinks these things are real, which is very, very problematic. And the reason it's problematic is because he's the president. (coughs) And it's bad if you have a president who's making up stories about things that happened in his past. He's like, you remember that time when, and it's just like it could be anything, and you know the guy um, who's probably probably some guy, Maybe Mr. Munoz, who's his handler, and when he says that, and there's a you know there's a phalanx of people you know behind Calpen there, you know with the lights is like a whole huge down. No! And the second he says that, they're like everyone starts texting. You know they take I've seen this boy they pick up the phones and like oh my god, president just said that this story about um his dad was gay or something. <laughs> we can't figure it out, but but let's get a let's get Munoz on the on the horn for this one. But um you know it's funny that I actually had, was just looking at numbers on gay marriage because a friend of mine had texted me and he was telling me that he was in some meeting and uh there was somebody talking about uh both sidesism which is I absolutely love um and by love I mean love and so I wrote him back and I said you know I don't really get how one chooses which side is not worthy of conversation. And they usually do that by it being a fringe view. And so both sides, as I said to him, would be, apply to gay marriage for most of my adult life because it was a fringe view. And I was just spitballing. I didn't know what it was, but I said, I bet it's this, that, and the other. And then I saw that um, the f- it was Gallup's first number was 1996, and it was 27% for and 68 opposed. But I found the first poll on record when it was first asked in 1988, and the percentage of people who, who strongly agreed that gay marriage should be legal, three percent. Wow, three percent strongly agreed that gay marriage in 1988. Wow. Um, that is that both sidesism. If you were to actually have that that one of those people it's, in the three percent actually come on it's TV,
2: barely aside.
1: Like it's, it's not even a side, but, but it's you make progress on that by having somebody come forward in an issue like that and make a really compelling argument. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, uh, Bruce Bauer, some of these people wrote a book called Place at the Table. Andrew's book, you know, really wrote these first books that, um, you know, made the case for gay marriage and were convincing and things started changing. I'm not saying it was Andrew who did this, but he certainly helped. But if you keep on saying, well, it's both, we can't have these fringe views. There's not two sides. There's the side that is correct, which is mine. And then there's a the side that's wrong, which is the other person's. So I, we, I determined, or I was thinking about this and looking this stuff up, and it's it appears to be that both sides them, um, is, you know, applies to people who have quote-unquote fringe or minority views.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually used most often— In uh, journalistic discourse policing moments to write out um, usually Republican or right of center, like mainstream within the right views. That's how it's used. So it is a, it is a, uh, you know, people pointing at the scoreboard and saying we won. Um, So why are we even talking to the opposition anymore? Um, Which. Uh, I recommend uh, re-listening to our conversation with Jonathan Rauch from a couple years back on this and his writing about it, which has been great, having to do with Frank Kemeny and other people. um, The long, slow, tedious, loss-strewn track record of people making the argument for just basic rights for gay people in America um, could only happen in a very, very liberal free speech regime in which people were not being... Uh, minorities were not being treated with like heavy-handed both sidesism accusations and drummed off of, of yeah. places where they could speak it's uh look it's amazing. this is
1: this is something with um the trans rights movement and i say this only as a as a kind of dispassionate political observer if i were to ask to come and speak to people who are leaders in this movement as a political consultant, I would just say, look, you're doing every, what's the name of that movie that won all the Oscars? Everything now, all at once. That's yeah. kind of what it is. You know, it's like there's a very long, it takes a long time, the civil rights movement, the gay marriage movement, et cetera. And this is a very compact, very, you know, it's like you don't, if you don't get on board with everything now, we're going to say that you're harming people. You're basically committing genocide against them. And it's like, regardless of the arguments on either side, it's, it's just a bad way when you look at how some of these movements have achieved um, enormous success over, you know, relatively short, short periods of time. I mean, you have 2,000 years of no gay marriage, right? And then it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a very long time where that 3% goes to, you know, well over 50%. I mean, I don't know what it is now, but it's, but it's pretty high. Even it's look- high. It's even over 50% amongst rep- Republicans, too. So that's a pretty, pretty impressive um, I think it would be zero percent amongst Republicans in 1988. You know,
2: I remember being invited by uh, Rand Paul, Senator from um, what is Tennessee, Kentucky, one of those places. Uh, Tennessee, uh, no Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, yeah, from Kentucky,
1: any,
2: yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, he invited me to go uh, speak to his interns um, uh, uh, several years ago, and talking about kind of, of the history of the success. Like, when did it? when did certain libertarian-ish ideas achieve success and how uh, how do they get there? And um, and part of what I was looking at is um, how much of it had to do with overt political process, how much it had to do with like uh, culture, um, Hollywood in some cases, which plays a big role in gay marriage um, or just sort of gay acceptance uh, in general and other things. And it's, it's rare in those cases, I concluded to them that – You will see um, especially elected federal politicians play any kind of really meaningful role, uh, let alone a meaningful leadership role in this, um, because they're scared shitless to do anything, which is the story of Democrats, especially on most of these issues. They don't want to lead with it because they're afraid of freaking people out in the kind of Bill Clinton triangulating way. And Joe Biden comes from that tradition historically. um, So he was always like he understood, had a, a good political instinct, regardless of whether you agreed with his policies and basic sense of uh, courage versus cowardice of like where America was willing to go on some of these issues. So like, you don't look for politics, but there's a couple of moments in which politicians, and I want to just do this to try to, in one single podcast, have a nice thing to say about both Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom, because it's never going to happen again, Um, which is to say (laughs) that in the gay marriage Discussion and gay acceptance discussion for almost the entire run. um, Politicians, Democratic politicians, Republican politicians were not helpful. They were usually the the opposite of helpful. Mm -hmm. For instance, the Defense of Marriage Act, nineteen ninety six, classic case of which Joe Biden voted for unhelpfulness, uh, like trying to like preemptively criminalize or or prohibit gay marriage. Mm -hmm. However, you have the aforementioned Joe Biden, kind of like. Floating a trial balloon and people like just going, yes, let's do that, which is a great moment. Another moment um, that led a lot to the those public opinion numbers changing so rapidly was Gavin Newsom. As mayor of San Francisco, he uh, basically officiated and said, screw it. Let's start doing gay marriages on uh, City Hall steps here in San Francisco in the late 90s. And the first people who did it were like this sweet old lesbian grandmas who like, mm-hmm. came in. And everyone's like, oh, wait a second. They're not wearing feather boas. They don't have a Freddie Mercury mustache. They're not like doing this or that and the other. Not that there's anything wrong with a Freddie Mercury or a Bobby Gritch mustache, to be clear. <laughs> but I'm saying like people's attitudes about like what flamboyant gay would be and how they might be scary uh, to Do that. You remember that Onion
1: headline about the Gay Pride Parade? It was, like, oh, the no. Gay Pride Parade sets cause of, of gay rights back 20 years. <laughs> it was like See? a picture of a guy on a float with like a jock strap on <laughs> It's very funny. Back when The Onion did things that were not like just advocacy, which is kind of weird. It's what they're doing now.
2: But that was a Gavin Newsom joint. And when people saw and this is true of of, uh, medical marijuana, too, um, which also was California mid 90s, late 90s thing, uh, when people actually saw that some of their neighbors were gay and that they weren't going to completely ruin the world. When people saw that you could have a dispensary on the corner and people you know walking in and out and the whole place didn't go to shit. Um suddenly they're like, oh, wait a second. So it's just it's like people we know. It's not like some scary Muslims somewhere or whatever you're filling the blank this year's uh, uh devil is um it wasn't any of that and that kind of familiarity suddenly reversed a lot of that stuff. And again, usually it's not politicians. It's the opposite of politicians who make that stuff happen. It's oftentimes, if it's the political process at all, it's using the ballot initiative system in a city or a state, and then you start the process. Well, let me
1: ask you a quiz question, Matt, which I think you know the answer to. I think you'll get this. Who was the one Republican who voted against the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996?
2: I don't, uh, please tell me it was Jesse Helms.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. he he (laughs) was one right when he came out. Um, and no, do you remember Steve Gunderson? Uh, no, I don't of, remember that. That's good. One of the um, only two openly gay Republican cars was uh, Jim Colby. But he was outed on the House floor uh, during, I think, a debate about this by, and this one won't surprise you, B 52 Bob Dornan, uh, oh, who God. Bullet really, Bob. Bullet Bob, who really did not like gay people and was a real horrible. Hateful person um, from Orange yeah, County, California, was, which is Origin now County, a, yeah.
2: the Democratic stronghold. Believe it or yeah. not, but like uh, yeah, that was the, up,
1: that so. was Bercher territory back then. So should we talk very briefly about this because I think it's pretty interesting? And you know, there's so many of these controversies that go on on campus, and we we literally talk about none of them. I mean, there's just like they come up here and there, but you could devote an episode to every single one of them. But this one, for some reason, gained a bit of traction. And I think for a pretty good reason, and this was a a federal judge, I think he was appointed by Trump. Uh, What's this guy's name? I have to to look it up. Speaking at Stanford University Law School, one of the best law schools in the country, apparently, and was uh, shouted down during his speech and then interrupted by the head of DEI at the law school, who proceeded to lecture him. Um, th- that he was uh, doing harm to students and uh, he should basically shut his mouth. After this, the hilarious part is that Stanford uh, kind of apologized, but not really. It's not really an apology, but it's kind of a half-hearted thing to try to placate students to. And then sends out another email which says, if you if you have trauma from this, if you've had a hard time uh, dealing with this, you can go to, and one of the people listed, the head of DEI. <laughs> who was the one that was mow-mowing this, uh, judge, which is, if you can watch it, it is really astonishing thing to watch. And, uh, so after a half-hearted apology, the woman who wrote this apology was met by a phalanx of students in, in silent protest, which is better than what they usually do, uh, which is usually screaming them and calling them all sorts of terrible names. Um, you know, just glaring at, at this woman and doing this protest. And there was, I guess, a letter that, uh, that was put together by the uh, law, law school, uh, law students. One third of the law students uh, signed a letter saying that people like this should not be allowed on campus and shouldn't be allowed to debate um, because they do harm. And debates used to be, I mean, this wasn't even a debate, it was a lecture, it was a, you know, you go and you ask questions at the end of it, right? The climate on campus is one that should be about intellectual exchange and debate, But if you think we've lost that, go watch this video, and it'll absolutely prove that we have lost it in a very significant way. And the fact of the matter is, is this is one of the best schools in the country, the hardest school to get into. And it is full of complete morons uh, who don't understand the purpose of a school like this. And it is just a really stunning and appalling thing to watch.
2: It's Judge uh, Kyle Duncan of the Fifth Circuit, and I want to give credit to uh, David Latt, who... um, it's nobody's right of center yes. legal no, definitely um, not. uh chronicler. He did the Above the Law blog for a really long time, um, uh, or Beyond the Robes or <laughs>
0: mm,
2: yeah, <laughs> uh, Under the Robes. <laughs> it's all all the above. Um but really good for a long time. I had COVID and like almost died, I remember, uh, in the early days of that. Yeah, early. Um and uh, but he did an excellent reporting about this of just pointing out what a travesty it was. It's the idea that people would not be able to sit still while listening to a judge give a lecture at a law school um, is you, you can wrap your head around so many pretzels trying to justify this and looking at whatever judge's opinion was that was bad and whatnot. You live in a country where he's a judge. So now what are you going to do? Um, you cannot both sides yourself out of that if you are a law school, you can't. You're like you really can't like there are judges that are appointed by republicans and democrats those are basically the choices that we have um in our system right now so where do they come from what do they say and what do they believe uh is just kind of a basic thing and uh you could see that the DEI dean martinez i believe her name was um uh had a very prepared statement she was ready to read the guy uh his uh, riot act yes yeah um uh and uh, is that your job? Your job no. is to, to take someone who is a, uh, a quote unquote controversial speaker or potentially controversial speaker at a place where I don't know, I'm guessing that, uh, you know, Angela Davis has probably made a speech doubt it like <laughs> data was subject to uh, the same amount of controversy, strangely enough. Um, and, uh, and then to, Treat that invited speaker with a list of why he uh, is bad and introduces values that you care about. What kind of deanship is that? Mm. Um, this is exactly what gives the Chris Rufos of the world ammunition as they go through their lives doing their things. And he was Chris Rufo today, went through his life and did his things in a conjunction, I believe, with uh, Ron DeSantis, um, uh, you know, came out with a, a tweet saying that we're going to or at least, you know, in relationship with, with work that he's doing down in Florida, that we're just going to roll back these departments at state universities uh, altogether. Um, you're giving those people ammunition. Um, anyone who watches the video, I would, I would think. Um, not, not anyone, let's just say, I'm willing to say that it's an 80 to 20 uh, uh, percentage of people who would bother to sit through there and think, whose side am I on? The dean's side, the DEI dean's side, or the other side. Um, It'll be pretty clear, I think, that it just looks, it looks insane. It doesn't pass the sanity test. Um, So if that is what you're doing at levels of elite discourse, training law students, um, you know, you can, and and, uh, Ken White, former guest in this podcast, Popat, one of many people who've quit Twitter in a showy display of something or other, had a long and worth reading um, substack piece. He's pivoted to Substack, um, in which, and Ken is someone who has, for a long time, really poo-pooed the notion that there is such a thing as the culture of free speech. And he's been very critical of people like Robbie Suave, who's also a former guest on this podcast, and my colleague at Reason, for, in his view, um, spending too much time getting involved, worrying about campus free speech issues. Well, Ken White came out and had a long piece pointing out that... Yes, these students acted bad, but then he kind of both sides did himself of saying, well, you know, we also have to uh, have some blame for the Federalist Society for like inviting someone who's kind of trolly as a judge and putting words in his mouth. Go read it yourself. Um, And uh, okay, that's a that's an opinion to have. But I'm I'm confident in stating that most normies who watch this will say, what the fuck is this doing at a law school? Um, this type of treatment of a human being if th- this is not how you're going to prepare anyone to come in contact with the real world i mean what was the name of that it was paper chase remember it was john houseman or someone who's just like a grumpy <laughs> asshole at an ivy King, league yeah, school yeah, just yelling guy. at people it's a great tv mm-hmm. show from the from the seventies, of like, I would expect as someone who is a undergraduate dropout that if you went to the trouble of going to a law school, you expect to be just generally yelled at by professors and authority figures, uh, but certainly open to listening to people who are professionals in your chosen field, and not trying to drum them out of a room. It's not hard. You don't have to overthink it. The the, the like. The the conclusion that you would get to watching this is, why do we have a DEI dean? What is this person doing um, that is adding value to this institution uh, for the free exchange of ideas? That's not adding value to my view.
1: No, I mean, the D in that DEI is, I mean, it just shows that they don't even pretend anymore. That the word diversity does not, they're like, you cannot have these views on campus. We need everyone who thinks exactly the same, but looks slightly different. That's what, that's what diversity means to us, obviously. A, a comment that's been made a thousand times, probably on this podcast, but it's always worth reiterating in a, in a case like this. But, you know, the whole purpose of being a lawyer is debate, isn't it? Isn't that why you go to school, to hone your skills of debate? And you don't want someone there that is, you know, you, you, like, and also, by the way, it, it was pointed out that a student, one student was like said that he was racist against black people because of some court, some case that they had cited, and he actually voted um, in the minority and voted against the, what the opposite of what they said he did. So they're not okay. even doing the basic research. But there's so much of a theater of it that they love being a part of something, and it becomes, of course, the madness of crowds. They become i mean i've seen this up close it starts swelling, and these people start getting more and more irritated and just egging each other on and something they probably wouldn't do in a one on one thing you know it's like it's like you know yelling at the guy who's a muscle bound you know psycho who's in the car next to you and you can do it with the window up, you can give him the finger, but if on the street you would get your sm- face smashed and you don't do it. They do it when it 's in a crowd, and there's that sort of safety of crowds and that's you know safety in numbers and this is what we see all the time in these cases but what I find really depressing about this is somebody saying, well, this is not a problem on, on university campuses. This is your imagination. And FIRE apparently makes up the cases. That's the foundation for individual rights. Not it used to be an education. Now That's it's something— An expression. An expression. They're just apparently making up all these cases. The problem is that they only go one way. And if the Chris Ruffos of the world, it's, it's, it's very, very bad policy for a thousand reasons. It's not even worth— you know going too deep into i think most people realize that shutting down departments for political reasons is not a great idea that those departments are political in nature is pretty much every university in america at this point is that a problem i do i do believe so how does one confront that problem well bring people like this judge to campus and let everyone freak out that's fine you sh- what you have to do is say okay we're going to have you know, such and such course. Okay. You don't have a major. I don't know why Chris Rufo is deciding this for state universities in Florida, but you don't want to have a major. Do, do you object to the course? Cause then you get to the course level and you start saying, well, you know, this, you know, history of gay rights or queer theory or something. The thing that you have to do in response to this stuff is a openness in hiring because look, I, the problem is, is that there's one ideology in all this stuff. And I, I made this comment in the paid episode the other day, is that, yeah, DeSantis was was unfairly treated when it came to the AP stuff, the AP African-American history stuff, in which people said, oh, they don't want to, he doesn't want to teach about slavery. It was just a kind of unipolar idea of American history. It was like, these are the people that you're going to, it's bell hooks and people like this, and there's one way of viewing this stuff, and there's no space for any dissenting views because it's both sides of them. They don't believe it. This is where the two ideas, you know, kind of crash together because on the both sides of them point, they don't believe these people deserve mention or have any merit because they're not, their views not held by many, I've heard this argument a million times. They're not held by many African-Americans. Well, that's not entirely true by the way. And black voters are be- becoming more conservative in, in certain ways. And, you know, Trump's numbers went up with black voters, too. But this is troubling. I don't like this blunt way of responding in saying we have to eliminate departments. That, by the way, is not going to go very well if DeSantis signs on to it uh, when he's running for president. Because I don't think that a broader audience is going to react well to that particularly because you can frame it in a million different ways. Whether or not it's true doesn't make a difference. But saying we are going to eliminate departments because they're, they're politically motivated, would you be okay? Would he be tweeting about, and I, you know this isn't true, be tweeting about a econ department or econ class in which it was only Austrian economists that were taught? But it wasn't the Austrians, history of Austrians. It was taught in a kind of theological way that this is our kind of religion of this economic ideology, I don't think you get much complaint for that. I don't, th- I mean, I think this is not an honest broker. So
2: I would guess that the uh, Rufo tactic now, again, I haven't like read his latest city journal piece that is pegged to, I'm sure it's a, a new campaign he's trying to do in the state level. Um, uh, getting rid of DEI departments is not necessarily an academic department. It's like the internal personnel, new uh, structure that was built in, over the last five years in places uh, all over the place and they have been built in a lot of places all over the place um and i am too very skeptical um about what they do and what they accomplish and if they Yeah yeah they, that's
1: a f- f- nonsense job yeah those are made up jobs that didn't exist Right
2: before. so i mean to the extent of which that you have things like that at Stanford Stanford's a private university in California but California has a very elaborate Uh, And usually pretty good uh, University of California system, Cal State system, and then community college system. There's DEI departments all over the place. So imagine California was run by Ron DeSantis instead of Ron Death Santist, uh, instead of uh, Gavin Newsom. Um, You're going to put these fights are going to be with us. I saw someone who writes and talks about education in a, a, a pretty serious way was complaining today that if you look at mainstream newspapers, they're just covering culture war, education issues to the exclusion of all these other things that are very important that are happening right now. Um, And there's a point to that um, uh, where, you know, people, reporters and news organizations are attracted to political conflict and people are going to be showy there. And then there's much more of a racial angle. And so let's just go with it and run with it. Um, It's easier on some level to cover than big structural problems, like where are the <laughs> vanished 2 million or whatever the number is K through 12 students that we don't know where they are, uh, since COVID, uh, which is huge, uh, including Oregon and New York and everywhere. Um, and yes, that's true. It is also true that at a time of, um, increased polarization and a reduction of trust and a, and a sense of trust, there's really ruptured in a way by COVID where trust in authorities, trust in the way the schools are run, uh, trust about just like whatever portrayal of the science is you're going to have, um, all of these institutions or places that were supposed to be neutral are going to be battlegrounds. And so it is going to attract people who are political pugilists. It's kind of inevitable. So the more political that you make it over there on your end, thinking that no one's going to care because I'm going to say, oh, I was just campus. Um, People are going to kind of run out of fucks to give about it and start caring about it. Um, so I'm afraid that we're right now in a little bit of a doom loop when it comes to it, because mm-hmm. every time that you have a DEI dean at Stanford trying to shut down or like get it, do a finger wag in the face of a invited speaker who happens to be a Fifth Circuit judge, then you just gave Chris Rufo wings. Uh, so she should also be fired,
1: by the way, just to be clear. I mean, she should she should have been fired the next day. That's not how you behave. I mean, students who behave in such ways should be kicked out of school or be sanctioned in some way. Um, and they used to be, um, and I guess they often are still. But I guess if the ideology is correct, uh, and you're afraid of the people that this woman could marshal on her behalf, uh, you allow it to happen. And I just want to say on the Rupa thing that the reason I'm so clumsy about this and kind of stuttering my way through. I don't know much about it. I don't know anything beyond that tweet. And I would have to look at it. It does sound exactly like something that I would hate. And um, it is worrisome. It it is not something, by the way, that and we'd warned against this, too. It's not not going to be just kids. The kids stuff you can get away with. But it was always like that with cigarettes. It was, you know, the campaign for tobacco free kids. You remember that? They were like tobacco free children. And then They're like, okay, we've cleaned that up now. Um, Let's raise the age on smoking. Let's put punitive and uh, regressive taxes on cigarettes. Let's start start banning them in public. It's always like starts with the kids, right? And we had talked about this, is that it's going to end up, and it's like, well, it's public universities. But, you know, these are adults who can make choices of what classes they want to take. And that stuff is Quite worrying, but that's not going to work. Just on a, and I won't say more about what the plan is because I don't know what the plan is, so I shouldn't really talk about it at all. But I will say that politically, if that is something they think will work in the same way, you know, kids getting books about, you know, guys getting or, or little boys getting hand jobs or something, which always seems to be that, but it's a lot of hand job books, fellatio for like eight year olds and stuff. People don't I kinda like. Wish,
2: I kind of wish I knew that it was in the future.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Chris Rufo is going to ruin your future, because you, you you would have had that book, and now he's taking it off the shelf. That kind of stuff really sticks in people's craw. They think it's inappropriate. They think it's gross. Trying to get somebody to understand that a theory department, queer theory or something. And by the way, when, I don't know what's it's like now. When I was in school, those were always subsumed by actual departments um anything that ended in yeah. studies was always the worst you didn't want to take those and they never had their own departments it was like women's studies uh, you know various ethnic studies and various Chicago identity studies. yeah that was that was a big one i don't think they use that word anymore but yeah that was a big one in the past but that stuff never had its own department so if it's, if it's elimination of those classes then the question is do you want a class in which some of these texts can be taught because they're influential and they are out there in the world, and uh, balanced out by by text that would disagree with it? Are you trying to push balance? Are you trying to push the elimination of something that you find so noxious that you don't think it should be taught? Those are different things. So we'll get back to that when I'm sure we'll get back to it. I don't really want to, but we'll get back to it at some point. Um, but we should probably wanna, break out of here, shouldn't we?
2: Let's break out. I just wanted to uh, to to point out, Michael said something about Uh, how the media was being uh, unfair to DeSantis about a thing. Um, That's going to be our lives for the next 17 months or I can't count. Um, Just just today, and we didn't talk about it, Michael McCall also kind of referred to it, but um, DeSantis is taking some flack for his answer to Tucker Carlson's uh, primary quiz to all the Republican candidates, I think six of them about what do you think about Ukraine? It was a series of questions, useful exercise. Thank you, Tucker Carlson for doing that. Um, and DeSantis's answer, which is considerably less, let's say robustly pro Ukraine as Congressman Ron DeSantis, or even Ron DeSantis from, uh, when he was running for governor the first time around, I think, um, uh, use the phrase uh, "territorial dispute" to describe uh, yeah. things between Russia and Ukraine, which good, is a, not a good phrase. Yeah. Not a good phrase. Um, uh, yeah, somebody I, pointed
1: I, out, it's like a bank robber going in and robbing a bank and saying that it was a dispute about money. <laughs> so
2: so yeah, I saw right. this. So I saw this. So again, I, Michael and I are going to be critical of that in forthcoming episodes. We'll have more robust discussion uh, about that and what it means. Um, Stu Stevens from the Lincoln Project was on MSNBC, and that's already a sentence that makes me want to jump out of a window, but uh, thankfully honestly, I'm in the basement. It,
1: it is like, you could put needles in my eyes. I would rather that than have to watch Stu Stevens on MSNBC.
2: Here's his quote on Chris Hayes. Um, the, scare quote, anti-woke guy, Ron DeSantis, his ideal is Putin's Russia, where there are no gay people, where there are no women in power where they're all Christians. That was his response. I mean,
1: there are gay people. They just have a really shitty anti-gay law. There are women in power, by the way. Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Many them are shitting. sure.
1: You know, yeah, it's not, it's not balanced, but it's also, what are you talking about?
2: What are you talking about?
1: What are you talking about? about? Look, DeSantis on this thing is trying to thread this needle and I don't like it. And I don't like the fact that, you know, to Tucker Carlson, he's like, you know, I'm going to get lit up by Tucker. Uh, if I say, you know, I want to provide money to the Ukrainians, I think Nikki Haley was the one who said, yes, we should provide money to the Ukrainians. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I don't remember exactly the phrasing of it. But I mean, obviously, this is a very political answer. This is not something that is an actual direct reflection of what he thinks about this conflict. I don't believe that in the same way that I don't believe that Barack Obama in 2008 was opposed to gay marriage, which he said quite loudly and publicly, um, only to, to turn on his heel four years later. But yeah, I th- the the, the territorial dispute stuff is just whoever wrote that um if it was him it's a very being very generous in saying it's a clumsy location it is not a territorial dispute there is there are territorial disputes right but they were already resolved to uh Russia's liking by violent invasions of Donetsk which was never really resolved obviously and the occupation of Crimea and then the invasion of other parts of Ukraine, trying to take Kiev, people forget about that. That's not territory that, that it was, quote-unquote, in dispute. The thing that's in dispute is if, you are, if you're a greater Rus, if you're a Vladimir Putin, that Ukraine doesn't exist and it should be, should be taken and subsumed by Russia and become part of Russia. I guess it's a territory in dispute. But no, I mean, obviously you don't understand what he's doing here. Um, and I think if this question was asked uh by you know, while he was sitting in front of the New York Times editorial board, which is something that candidates always do, uh, I don't think you get the same uh answer. And right now, I don't think, but Tucker yeah. is the way Tucker is. Uh you don't want to get lit up by him, you want to keep on his good side. Um so I don't know what he believes, but he's he's sounded very different on the issue um a lot of times in the past. So we can yeah. talk about that. What later, you get-
2: Again, we'll talk about that later, but, uh, you can bet that the way that he'll be treated, um, uh, and is being treated on a daily basis already, just the, you could, st- if this was in the blogging days, you know, you could have the, uh, worse than Trump watch, uh, <laughs> out yeah. there cause it's a daily thing at this point. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's incredibly, it's both lazy and it is incredibly, helpful to Ron DeSantis. So, congratulations. You sounding the warning in the media against how Ron DeSantis is the real fascist in the race. You are making it uh, more likely, not less likely, that he will, at the very least, be the one person who can legitimately challenge Trump.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is what the Nazis did, is always a phrase that should give you pause. If you're ever about to utter it on cable TV or on a tweet— because uh, most of the things that the Nazis did, could Stalin also did, so why aren't you choosing him?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like, you know, if you want to say, oh, it's book burning, do you, do you think there was you could read openly in Stalin's Russia or Castro's Cuba? Oh, I see, you're trying to get to the anti-Semitism and the Holocaust is what you're trying to hint at, which I find a bit sleazy. Uh, um, in, was, Stalin
2: wasn't anti-Semitic, right?
1: No, the doctor's plot was just the joke. Um, he happened he happened to die right after it but it was a huge hilarious joke uh, like a Catskills type thing that got out of hand yeah (laughs) Yeah. definitely love the Jews so Trotsky in particular anyway Mm. right. anyway we should go we should go I guess Camille will be back next time right I don't know should we say bye now who cares who cares we don't need it okay bye Bye.
0: We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The fifth column.